Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that happened yesterday in the Ontario legislature. Uh, the Ontario government uh, has passed legislation to repeal the province's cap-and-trade system, putting the final nail in the coffin of a program that Doug Ford has long been well, going after and said this was going to be one of his things that he just wanted to get done. It was actually introduced in July, but you may recall, as we told you on this program, uh, it was held up because an environmental group launched a legal action against the government, uh, alleging the province was actually flaunting Ontario's Environmental Bill of Rights by not holding public consultations. So the government held public consultations. Hands up anybody that saw any of those. No, I, neither did I. I don't know. But they say they did it, so mid-October, and they said it's all done. So they passed the legislation. Uh, let's talk about the ramifications of, of their act right now. And joining us uh, to do just that is Mike Schreiner, who is, of course, the MPP for Guelph and also leader of the Ontario Green Party. And, uh, Mike, first of all, thanks for the time. Good to have you back on the program. Oh, happy to be on, Bill, especially talking about such an important issue. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean you saw there, you were in the House, you saw the characterization from uh, Rod Phillips yesterday, the, uh, the Environment Minister, of course, for the government, says cap-and-trade was costly, it was ineffective, it was killing jobs, and it's gone. Uh, I've, I've always had problems with that third one, Rob, that it's kill, or Mike, that it was killing jobs, uh, because the numbers belie that. Uh, Ontario has actually had an incredible economic growth, and not, I think a, a, a plus 960,000 job total in the last little while. So where's the job-killing aspect? Well, there's a lot of problems with what the Conservatives are saying. They're really putting uh, ideology before evidence. So they say, you know, job-killing carbon tax. Well, Here's the bottom line. The five best-performing economies in Canada at the provincial level all have a price on pollution. The best-performing state economies in the U.S. have a price on pollution, including California, which actually has met its emission reduction targets ahead of schedule and has one of the best-performing economies in the world. Uh, the best-performing uh, economies in Europe all have a price on pollution. China's even bringing in a pl- price on pollution. So this rhetoric about uh, pollution pricing being bad for the economy, it just isn't based in any facts whatsoever. But it certainly plays well to their base. Well, it certainly plays well to their base, but I think they're misleading their base. Now, I have some problems with cap-and-trade myself, Bill, and it was never my preferred method of pricing pollution. But if you would bring in the Green Party's plan, put a price on pollution, uh, and then rebate all that money back to people as a carbon dividend, so send you a quarterly check to help you manage the transition to a low-carbon economy, that creates the market mechanisms to um, incentivize reducing pollution while at the same time literally putting money in people's pockets. That's what the premier campaigned on. And that, would, that wouldn't be the only solution to the cri- climate crisis, but it certainly would be an important one. Uh, and, you know, why the government doesn't explore low-cost, efficient ways of pricing pollution uh, and helping people with, you know, modest and middle incomes manage the transition makes no sense to me why they don't support something like that. Well, the plan that you've just outlined is... is a variation on what uh, the Prime Minister is trying to do right now and trying to get instituted. And I'm sure you saw that poll that came out today that suggested that over 50% of Canadians now are supportive of that sort of a plan uh, that's going to see the rebate checks go right back to individuals as opposed to what this government was doing, the the, the wind government was doing on this. Yet we've got a Premier in this province, Mike, that's uh, already committed $30 million to fight this in court. Yeah, so that I just find outrageous. I don't think anyone... Uh, voted conservative to have the premier waste your hard-earned tax dollars on a politically motivated lawsuit against the federal government that has no hope, at least according to most legal scholars, of being successful. So, you know, here's here's where we are in Ontario. Uh, According to the Environment Commissioner's Office, uh, in the first six months of this year alone, uh, extreme weather events caused by climate change is costing the average household $350. So we're on track, if you know you take that out over the full 12 months of the year, for climate change to cost every household in this province around $700. And yet we have no plan. I think that's fiscally irresponsible on the part of the government. They have no plan. By the way, they, the irresponsible way they canceled the cap-and-trade plan is going to contribute an additional $3 billion to our budget deficit, which we already have a budget deficit, but it's you know, way too high. 
then on top of that, they're going to waste at least $30 million in a politically motivated lawsuit against the federal government. And they've now told investors around the world that when it comes to the clean economy, the fastest growing sector of the global economy, that Ontario is closed for business. You know, ripping up contracts for renewable energy and things like that has even led the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and the Business Council of Canada to, you know, chastise the government saying, you know, why are you doing this? This sends the wrong message to investors and job creators. Uh, so I think what they're doing is, is, is entirely irresponsible. It's reckless and it's unnecessary because we can put forward a climate plan that I think fits with, uh, you know, some of what the, what the government was talking about during the election campaign. You know, this whole thing, and, and there have been a couple of different, I think, uh, examples of this, Mike. Actually, Porto, I, I think one of the shortcomings of our, our first-past-the-post system here in our voting system, uh, because what we're hearing from the Ford government consistently is, you know, uh, this is what Ontario voters wanted, and we're going to deliver on this. Now, and, and I get that to a point. I mean, that's how the game of politics is played. But look... I'm sure that there are some people that have voted for the Ford government that, that wanted him to tear up the sex ed curriculum. I'm sure there are some people that wanted to see him get rid of cap and trade. But I think the reality here in this province is that the majority of people that voted pro- probably for the PCs simply wanted to get rid of Kathleen Wynne and didn't really give a darn exactly what Ford was going to do. But they take that victory and say, now we can do whatever we want because we have this strong mandate. Yeah, you just said it very well, Bill, and you're absolutely right. And I would just add to that that uh, 60% of the people who voted voted for a political party that supports some form of pollution pricing. Now, the Liberals, the NDP, and Greens all have, you know, different approaches to that. But the bottom line is, is the majority of the people who voted, uh, the vast majority, actually, 60%, voted for a party that supports pollution pricing. So for the Premier to come in and say that he has a mandate to just just throw Ontario's climate uh, plans away. And then they had the audacity yesterday to stand up uh, in the House and cheer about the fact that they've just, you know, decimated Ontario's climate plan. And then when I tried to raise um, an emergency motion to have an emergency debate on the climate crisis, the federal parliament has had one, the B.C. legislature has had one, especially given just the you know terrifying report that came out from the IPCC, which says that if we don't start reducing the trajectory of uh, global emissions by 2020, that then in the next 12 years we're going to be unleashing um, you know a climate catastrophe that you know far exceeds anything that scientists have been predicting up to this point. Uh, for us to not even for the government to even block discussing that, having a debate around that, I think is irresponsible and does a disservice to the people of Ontario. Well, they say they're going to roll out a plan, and, and we'll see what happens with that. But, I mean, I'm not very confident about that at this stage, Mike, because the way that Doug Ford talked about it a couple of weeks ago, they, I think one of the people in the, politi- in the scrum said, well, you know, what happens for people that are in noncompliance? He's, well, I'll go have a talk with them. Yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm really, are you kidding me? That's, that's, that's the essence of their plan? Yeah, well, the other thing, Bill, is what I find so outrageous about that statement is that uh, once upon a time, conservatives believed in markets. I mean, even Preston Manning, uh, you know, was given the, giving conservative political leaders a rough time for not supporting pollution pricing because it's basically just using a market mechanism, which you would think can fit, fits in with, you know, conservative values or principles. But I would say that, you know, having the, you know, premier of the province use strong-arm tactics against businesses that are, you know, polluting. That sounds like something that, you know, I don't know, maybe Hugo Chavez or somebody like that would do. Not, not or, or Don in a, Corleone. In a, yeah, exactly. Not somebody, you know, in a, in a, in a province that's governed by the, the rule of law, that's democratic, that, you know, has a market economy. It just seems to contradict so much of what I thought conservatives used to believe in. Well, and, and that's one of the ironies of this whole situation is, is the whole idea of carbon pricing was actually something that was being developed and put forth by the conservatives some years ago. As a matter of fact, one of Mr. Ford's uh, chief economic advisors was a strong proponent of carbon pricing. Uh, I guess, obviously, he's changed his tune since his boss has changed his tune on this. But it, won, it, it boggles the imagination that there'd be such an about turn on this. But listen, I got to exactly. ask you. You mentioned about the cap and trade, and by the way, Mike, you and I have talked about this in the past, and we share this, some of the concerns about how the wind government actually rolled this out. 
and and what they were doing with the money. I mean, you know, I don't know that anybody in this province, except uh, people that were going to buy a Tesla, were crazy about getting rebate checks back. I think that was wrongheaded. But we have already seen some of the ramifications from canceling this program is billions of dollars that was scheduled for infrastructure for cities and for boards of education is now gone. Uh, and that's that's a a real problem. I, we've talked to members of the Hamilton board here. Uh, obviously, the city of Hamilton's concerned about that. That was money that's supposed to go to transportation and infrastructure costs. I'm sure up in Guelph, you've got the same sort of problems right now. That's that's a form of downloading. It, what they've done by canceling this program is basically said to local taxpayers, "You guys are on your own now to fix all this stuff." Yeah, Bill. It's a. It's a I know it's a huge issue in Hamilton. It's a big issue in Guelph. The city of Guelph put forward an official submission during the you know consultation process, which doesn't sound like the government listened to anything that people told them, uh, uh, because, you know, it, it certainly affects the city of Guelph's budget. Uh, and what really, really um, disappoints me is that a lot of what was cut were programs designed to help people save money by saving energy or to help public institutions or municipal governments um, uh, save money by saving energy. So, you know, the fact that, you know, $100 million taken away from schools, that was money schools were going to invest in, in helping, you know, them to reduce their electricity and heating bills. Um, the city of Guelph has some very innovative programs to reduce the city's energy use. Um, they've lost funding for that. Hospitals have lost funding. Social housing, um, you know, retrofits have been lost. Those were all investments that were going to help save money over time and save energy and reduce carbon pollution. And then, you know, the the um, canceling the rebates to help individual homeowners. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, uh, concerned about, you know, how rising energy costs are affecting particularly people with lower incomes. Nobody should have to choose between heating and eating. And to have the government cancel programs that were actually going to help people reduce their energy bills, to me, is short-sighted and irresponsible. Well, um, let's crunch some numbers here, since, you know, they're, they're for the little guy, Mike. Uh, as as you've already mentioned, I mean this this cancellation of this program right now leaves them with a three billion dollar uh, shortfall in in income for the government. That's going to be a problem. I don't know how they're going to make that up. Although I I hate to think of what the options are going to be at this stage. Uh, they've already, uh, as we say, downloaded the costs of of a lot of these repairs that were going to be done from boards of education in cities right across the province onto pro- property taxpayers. Uh, and there's uh, well, the other question, of course, is about a billion dollars in money that's left over from some of the uh, purchases that are the, that the government, the previous government, made. We don't know what they're going to do with that money. I mean, they had, you know, they called what Wynn was doing a, a, a slush fund. They they got a billion dollars sitting someplace. We have no idea what they're going to do with it. Yeah, I never thought you'd hear me say these words, uh, Bill. That um, you know, it appears that the previous government, which I gave a re- the liberals a pretty hard time on some of their financial accounting, it, it, at least in this regard, it appears the conservatives are even being less transparent than the liberals. I didn't think I'd ever, you'd ever hear me say that. But in, in this case, you know, that is a case. No, that set the bar pretty low. Exactly. The other thing that hasn't been brought up yet, Bill, either, is the way in which, uh, the reckless way in which they, clo- they canceled the cap-and-trade program uh, has exposed Ontario to possible legal risk. And um, I know there were few, I was on the committee that um, reviewed the cap and trade cancellation bill. And, you know, there were manufacturers there who had purchased um, emission credits, uh, you know, in good faith, obeying the law, following the rules. They're now out of luck. And the government's calling them speculators. And I asked one, um, you know, the owner of one company, I'm like, are you a speculator? Were you speculating in the market? And he's like, no. I was just trying to do the right thing. I was trying to follow the law and trying to make a business decision based on my legal obligations. And now I'm out a lot of money. Uh, I met, there was a lawyer who came to committee talking about, you know, how a number of um, her clients are considering uh, legal action. I tried to move some amendments forward to help protect the province against possible legal action. The Conservatives voted those down. And so I'm worried that the cost might even go up. Um, you know, it'll be good for lawyers, obviously, but I don't think it'll be good for the people of Ontario. 
Well, we have to wait for the other shoe to drop, I guess, because uh, the environment minister says they're going to roll their plan out, although it's not going to have any price on carbon on it. So uh, this is something that's new and innovative because I'm not so sure that that can actually happen. But uh, I guess at that point, Mike, we'll have to have that conversation. We do appreciate your time today, though. Thanks so much. Absolutely, Bill. And I've told the environment minister many times I'm happy to, to give him some ideas. And so even though we disagree on, on pollution pricing, I'm going to continue to try to work with the minister because this is such a critically important issue. Absolutely. Thanks again, Mike. We'll talk soon. Have a good day, Bill. Mike Schreiner, of course, Guelph MPP and a leader of the Ontario Green Party. Uh, and, and a great deal of concern. And, and I'm sure, like I say, the, the people that are hardcore uh, PC supporters, you know, that, that political base, that uh, the Premier seems to be playing to. I'm sure very, very happy about this. But you've got to ask yourself, uh, from a financial standpoint, what cost? You know, have, to have a, an income shortfall for the government of $3 billion, and then all these extra costs are going to go on to our property taxes as a result of this move. You've got to win yourself, ask yourself, really, legitimately, what's the upside here for you and me? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, should the gag order be lifted on traumatized jurors post-trial when it comes to, well, psychiatric mental health uh, assistance? Uh, amazingly enough, and we, we found this to be the case uh, with some of the more dramatic and, and horrific trials and some of the details that come out of some of these trials in recent years, it's, it's obvious, but now, now we're starting to think, understand that jurors can be impacted very negatively by this. And uh, some of them are feeling is, well, quite isolated because they don't think they're allowed to get the help that they really need. I want to bring Jeff Manishin into the conversation, criminal lawyer with Ross McBride here in Hamilton, a former Crown attorney. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. It's always a pleasure. To have a gag order on jurors and say you can't talk to anybody about anything that happened behind closed doors sounds a little draconian, but uh, was was that put in place with the best of intentions? Yeah, I think it uh, it was, Bill, and it's been around for a long time, certainly for as long as uh, I can recall. Um, the the phrase that's used is uh, that uh, the, the, unless it's for an in- investigation of a potential uh, offense under uh, another section of the criminal code, potentially obstruction of justice for a juror, um, or uh, giving evidence uh, in a criminal case regarding uh, some other offense, uh, nobody. Every member of the jury and anybody uh, providing any uh, technical or personal or other support service to the juror um, basically cannot disclose any information regarding the proceedings of the jury when it was absent from the courtroom if it wasn't subsequently disclosed in open court. So no juror or anybody offering support can do so. Otherwise, it's an offense punishable on summary conviction. And that has to do with any proceedings of the jury. But some would look at this and say, well, look, at if a verdict's already been rendered, what difference does it make? Yeah, I think the idea, though, is that uh, jurors should be allowed to serve the, the public and the community without fear of any recriminations, hearing about what somebody did or didn't think in a position that somebody took. They should be allowed to be able to keep it confidential. Um, it, the, the idea essentially being that they should be free to be able to express their views and know that it won't go outside the jury room. That's the thinking of it. And, and I can understand that rationale. But now let's move on to where we are here in 2018. And we've heard some stories, Jeff, about the impact on on not just jurors, but I think everybody in the court uh, on, on some of the things that have gone on, some of the trials, some of the horrific details that have gone on. And, and we understand that post-traumatic stress disorder can it be a factor in situations like this. So uh, I, I'm assuming that that's the, the motivation behind this legislation that's being proposed now. Yeah, and in fact, though, I seem to recall that we discussed several months ago the concept of the Ontario government providing trauma counseling for jurors. You did. And uh, I think we discussed at that time um, the challenges the jurors face where they have been through witnessing evidence of really dramatic and emotionally powerful and upsetting uh, proceedings and events. And... They may, other than talking to fellow jurors, who can they really talk with about it? Now, we have to be careful to be able to delineate. They can't talk to anybody about the proceedings. Can they talk about the effect that what they saw had on them? I would say they probably could, Bill, because remember, that's not talking proceedings. That's simply, I was really upset by what I saw. I was really upset by hearing this testimony. It's brought back memories for me, or it's caused me nightmares, or it's caused me a lot of emotional disturbance. Could one talk with a counselor about that? I would say they could, because that's not the proceedings. That's the personal impact. But there is a limitation. And, and how would the average person know where to draw the line? 
Well, I, that, that's a challenge. Obviously, a judge tells them you aren't talking about proceedings, and any person that was dealing with them should be made aware of that, too. So if the Ontario government has set up a counseling uh, support service for jurors, clearly whoever is available to be able to that kind, provide that kind of counseling would be aware of it. So you do have to take some care, but I guess the way that we'd phrase it, Bill, is that counseling process would be, process would be restricted. The juror might be limited as to how much he or she could say. Because, I mean, the, the reality here, Jeff, and you've talked about this with some of the other trials. I know we can't get into specifics about some of them, but, I mean, some of the stuff is public information. Uh, graphic photos of crimes, uh, of murders, uh, graphic descriptions, uh, videos in, in a couple of the high-profile cases that you and I have talked about over the last couple of years. Uh, it's got to have an impact on people. Sure, and, and I think one of the major reasons that it does, Bill, is, is what they're seeing is so foreign to their own life experience. I mean, we know that first responders can experience post-traumatic stress yep. by seeing the horrific consequences of criminal behavior, whether it's ambulance, fire department personnel, police personnel, and seeing it certainly um, upfront and personal has to be enormously impactful. But I know that at trials where cause of death is an issue, there's pretty graphic evidence in terms of events. And I've been involved in other cases where the nature of the evidence, 911 calls, and other testimony can be extremely emotionally uh, challenging. His and even in terms of being able to see how victims, uh, you know, and, and family members of deceased and so forth are dealing with it can be very distressing and upsetting, too. Has the court been aware of this? Are, are they making you know, some, some moves now to try to accommodate this? Well, you say as the court, there's no real power for a judge. There isn't a direct statutory power for a judge to do it. If memory serves, Bill, Mr. Justice Pat Lesage for the Bernardo case did basically direct for members of the jury and for witnesses and others in the Bernardo case that resources should be made available for them to receive some counseling. Um, has a judge got a power to do so? I, I suppose a judge could say, look, uh, I'm going to direct that funding should be available. You know, one of the things that's really difficult to build is jurors. They don't get paid very much for the service. Yeah. The first two weeks, they get nothing. And I think thereafter, they might get like $40 a day or something. And I, I've heard of some judges who will direct for longer trials that they should get that 40 right from the beginning or 100 right from the beginning. So there, there have been rare instances in which judges have directed that counseling effort, counseling resources should be provided, and that's what led to the provincial government establishing it. What we're dealing with here is a conservative member of parliament has said, well, there should be a kind of companion piece. The criminal code, which is federal, should be amended to be able to permit people to talk to health care professionals and counselors and therapists. So that's what this proposal is. It's in the criminal. It would be to amend the criminal code to give a greater license for people to be able to talk about the proceedings. And again, we get back to the idea of during the line. I mean, there's going to have to be some schooling here. I think even on behalf of the the mental health professionals that are doing this to say we can't really go down that road. Let's talk about this instead. Well, the purpose of the amendment to the code that's proposed that Susan wrote about in the column is to take that issue away. Is to say, don't worry about that. That's why the amendment to the code. So a judge can't do it. The provincial government can't do it because it's federal legislation. So, you know, it gets back to an interesting issue, Bill, even apart from the specific uh, restriction on, on, on the ability of the juror to talk about a case for the purpose of counseling. You know, over the years, there have been studies done in other countries about the impact of certain evidence on jurors, and it can be important from the standpoint of what kind of instruction to them could or couldn't assist them in understanding the law or applying certain legal principles to the evidence. Um, and you need to be able to know from jurors, I mean, wouldn't it be good to be able to find out, did you understand this particular explanation of the defense of not criminally responsible by mental disorder? Or I gave you an, a, an instruction on limited use of evidence. Did you get what I was saying on that? Did you follow it? And so forth. We can't do that social science research. We can't talk to jurors to find out about those sorts of things. And so we're kind of hamstrung in the justice system to learn. I heard a lecture some years ago uh, from a... Uh, uh, a lawyer from Australia, that they allowed in a certain category of cases and for a certain period of time and certain research purposes to be able to allow other researchers to talk to jurors. It was fascinating. We don't have that here. 
Well, and there's a science to that, and I know that you know Robert Grisham's written about it from a fictional standpoint, obviously, uh, with jury selection and things of that nature. But uh, it's 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 maybe one of the shortcomings because you're you're putting you know twelve people in in the, most cases, I guess, that are going to be involved in jury duty there, in a, in a in a position where they, you know they're going to be exposed to stuff that they probably heretofore have never seen before. It's going to have an impact on them. And and I guess one of the concerns you might have in the court is, well, how objective are they going to be right now because of the impact that that evidence has had on them? Well, that's an issue, Bill, that that is raised with respect to certain evidence. And so, for example, if uh, the Crown would propose to put in pictures of a postmortem or pictures of the deceased, there's a body of case law that permits the defense to object to that on the basis that it could really inflame the reality emotions of the jury and cause an emotional reaction. Um, but on the other hand, if cause of death is an issue, that evidence is certainly going to be relevant for the jury to have to see and hear. And the trend has been to say, look, jurors can understand that they have to you know, maintain their objectivity and decide it without any emotional reaction. But let's try it this way, Bill. So we say that to jurors. How well does that instruction work? How do we know? And you could say, well, let's just do a social science research exercise and put a bunch of people in a room, and they aren't, it's not a real case, but show them pictures and give them instruction, see how well they do with it. Well, that can help you to some extent, but it's kind of artificial. So, yeah, I mean, try it a different way, Bill. The Paul Manafort case. Remember the jury was out for a number of days? Yeah. Remember they convicted the majority of counts but acquitted on some? And you remember we heard that one juror was holding out. Okay. Does that advance the justice system to learn that? Have you seen cases in which juries have gone on TV on 60 Minutes or Dateline to talk about the deliberations in a given case? Does that help or not? Uh, that's, that's an issue that I raise, and it's one that is worthy of some discussion. Uh, I know personally I would love to be able to know more about their, you know, their deliberations, but there's something unseemly, on the other hand, of they're on TV and they're talking about it or they're writing books or articles about it. So it's a challenging kind of balance. Well, is, yeah, let me ask you, I've got about a minute left here, but yeah, let's counterbalance that with what happens in the States where we do see jurors writing books and going on Larry King. Well, not that Larry King's on anymore, but and, and telling their story about what went on in the, during the court. Obviously, we don't want to go down that road, but there seems to be a lot more leniency than down in the U.S. system. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think they have those same kinds of restrictions. Now, I won't comment on whether that's limited to state court or federal court or very state-to-state but certainly, there's an example for us to see what does the other half of the equation look like. So it may well be, to return to where we started, that this amendment to the criminal code is, let's call it a little much better than a halfway point. It will allow the jurors the full opportunity to discuss the whole experience of being on a jury for the purpose of getting mental health and stress counseling. So in that sense, it's a good amendment. And it's, as I say, it, it's complementary to, uh, in other words, supportive of, what Ontario has done, and probably other provinces should do too, is to make that trauma counseling available for jurors. It's it's an important service for people to serve, you know, on a jury, and we appreciate it. We have to, we owe it to them to give them the support they need. Absolutely, Jeff. Thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Okay, Bill. Always a pleasure, as I say. Jeff Madison, criminal lawyer with Ross McBride, former Crown attorney as well. Why don't I get Mark Ferrand into the conversation? Uh, Mark, of course, uh, is a, uh, somebody who served on a jury and has been one of the strong advocates for uh, this kind of uh, mental, mental, me- and medical help at the same time. Mark, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate you jumping on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You've been you've been very vocal about this. You've been an advocate for this. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the proposal, the amendment that is to Bill C four seventeen right now. What are your thoughts on what's being proposed? Well, I, I think it's a, a very important step uh, for uh, for the justice system and and for jurors and for Canadians. And I, I think it's um, it's, uh, it's 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 long overdue, and it provides um, jurors with. Um, a, a, a total package in the sense that they they can um, you know uh, once the trial is over and they aren't uh, feeling um, like themselves they aren't uh, or are disturbed by the images that they see in the courtroom and require um, um, medical intervention and, and access to a clinician they can now speak about whatever um, whatever they need to uh, under um, under the terms of, of being a juror and, and within the court. So there's no barrier now to them. Um, they can discuss deliberation. They can discuss um, any of the trial elements. 
I'd like to look at this, uh, the, the prohibition that has been in place for many, many, many years here, Mark, and simply say it was probably an oversight or a loophole here, because I don't think when this was devised that, that there was a, a much of an understanding about PTSD and the impact that it can have on people and the impact that, that this, this experience, this jury experience could have on people. Well, that's true, and, and, and I think, you know, also jurors for many, many years just didn't talk about the trial experience, and we didn't hear from jurors post-trial either. Uh, that, that exists in Canada. It's not like the U.S. where you can stand on the steps of the court, uh, the courthouse after a trial and, and speak openly about what occurred, how you reached the verdict, and, and you know, even get a book deal. Um, you know, the jurors simply walked out of the courtroom and, and disappeared into the ether, which, you know, is part of our system, and that's, that's a, a sense of privacy that is afforded to them. But um, we've heard from jurors over the years, and I'm one of them, that um, they just, you know, weren't feeling, um, you know, weren't feeling like themselves or like myself and others were deeply disturbed and, and affected by what they saw in the courtroom. And then uh, trying to access um, services post-trial was, uh, was almost impossible because they just didn't exist or they had to be issued by a judge at the time. How frustrating was that for you? Oh, it was intensely frustrating. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons that I that um, I got sicker and sicker over time because I couldn't, uh, A, access um, any services, and B, um, a lot of clinicians were uh, very apprehensive to take me on and, and other jurors because of that fear of um, there being reprisals because it's, it's, at that point, you know, there was confusion about the legalities of it. So a lot of clinicians just said, you know, I can't talk to you, you're a juror. It's illegal for us to have a conversation or you know, it's not. It's it's against policy within EAP programs. So they just weren't willing to take them on. So you know, the juror was really at the mercy of the public health system, and and trying to find a clinician on their own just seemed something that wasn't right. So you're in a situation right now where you're you're, you're dealing with issues. You're dealing with psychological issues because of this. Uh, and, and that's got to be exacerbated, I would think, Mark, by the fact that you know when you tried to knock on doors for help, everybody said, "Sorry, can't do anything for you." Yeah, that's that's true, and and you know it went it went on and on and on. And, you know, the public, uh, you know, I think it's 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 common knowledge now that it's it's it takes a long time for somebody to get access to um, a psychiatrist or or a psychologist through the system now as it is, and, and imagine that being um, equally challenging as a as a juror. So yeah, it could take you know six to eight months before you even have a meeting with somebody or even even able to find somebody who's willing to take you on. Yeah, and I mean, you can get into a, a hypothetical situation where you wait that six or eight months and get in there and say, okay, here's my problem. Well, I'm sorry, we can't talk about that. Yeah. And then yeah. you're right back to square one. Exactly. And so, you know, the Ontario government, uh, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, uh, all understood that and, um, and put uh, a program into place where jurors have access to a set amount of counseling hours um, through... Uh, through the attorney general's uh, uh, office in those in those respective provinces, but we're still looking at provinces that have nothing in place, um, or um, it's very cumbersome to get access to that that program. So, you know, this is a this is a big step federally to to remove that barrier, um, and you know, one of the first steps that that I hope is going to be in taking on you know those recommendations that the justice committee. Uh, put forward in May in, in their report after studying juror mental health and, and jury duty for a year. Well, it's it's been a long, hard fight, and I, I'd like to think that you haven't quite crossed the finish line. There's still work to be done on this, but, uh, boy, you, this is this is a big leap, isn't it? it, it yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I mean, the bill hasn't passed, so, yeah. uh, you know, it's a big step, and I, I, I hope that uh, people will look at the bill for what it is and, and not um, review it along political or partisan lines and, and see that it it's really meant to make the justice system stronger. It's meant to encourage people to um, to um, answer that call when they get their summons and, and to participate in jury duty. So it's, it's really meant to improve the system. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure as the debate goes on, we'll talk about, uh, more about this, but uh, so far, so good anyway, Mark. And uh, I can, congratulations on the great efforts that you put forward to try to get this to this point anyway, and hopefully we will push this over the finish line. Thanks again. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Take care. Mark Ferrand, of course, who is a, a former juror who's been fighting for this kind of help. But, uh, and he's got a very valid point here. This is actually an amendment that's being presented by a, a conservative 
uh, and it's a liberal majority government. And oftentimes those things kind of get shoved off to the side. You'd like to think that in the best interest of everybody that uh, they can just put this into the amendment to that bill and, and move on and get the help people need in situations like that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. U.S. midterm elections uh, will be next Tuesday. Uh, and to suggest that this has been one of the most uh, hate-filled and vitriolic elections in recent history, I think is a massive understatement. Uh, it just seems to get worse. And when you don't think it's going to get any worse, uh, they just dial it down even more. Uh, the most recent is a uh, racially charged national political ad uh, that President Donald Trump and the Republican Party accused the Democrats of plotting to help people that they depict as Central American invaders overrun America with cop killers. This is what this this is an actual ad. It's a new web video. It's tweeted by the president five days before the midterm elections. Uh, the most extreme step yet in the most inflammatory closing arguments of any campaign in recent history. The Trump campaign ad is the latest uh, example of the president's willingness, to, according to CNN, to lie and fearmonger in order to tear at racial and societal divides to embrace democracy and to bolster his own political power. It's a video produced by the Trump campaign. This is not a third-party ad- advertiser. This is the Trump campaign. It features a, a Mexican man who uh, had previously been deported but returned to the United States to kill uh, two California deputies, and he's quoted as saying, I killed and I'm going to kill more. And then the, there's a little line under there that says, Democrats let him into the country, Democrats will let him stay. Uh, and on and on it goes. And this is actually endorsed by Donald Trump. It's it's by the Trump campaign, uh, which is heretofore, und- un- well, uh, very unusual. So how is this going to play? Because uh, we've heard about the accusations, and, and you've heard about what he's talked about, about these people that are coming up through Central America right now. Uh, he's intimating, of course, and, and being very blunt about it in many of the speeches that he's making, that uh, that these are actually terrorists that are disguised as refugees, uh, that these are people that are going to rape and kill people as soon as they cross the border. Uh, and he's, he's basically sending U.S. troops down there for a confrontation when and if this should occur. Uh, who's buying into this right now, and what kind of an impact is it going to have on the election? Let's uh, bring Elliot Tepper into the conversation, uh, Professor Emeritus of Political Science from Carleton University. Elliot, so good to have you on the program again. Thanks so much for being with us today. Good morning, Bill. Well, I, I've seen some pretty ugly stuff over the last number of years in, in my time, whether it's the Johnson-Goldwater stuff or some of the other things that have gone on. But uh, I don't know that anything has, as compared to what we've seen over the last couple of months here. It's down and dirty, and it's closing time. So there, this is the the clinching moments of the election, and the Republicans are fighting hard, and Trump is fighting the hardest of all. This is all about let's divert attention from the successful campaign uh, efforts of the Democrats who are focusing primarily on health care. Let's not talk about health care, and let's instead talk about fear, fear of the others, I'll protect you, things that have worked very well for him in the past, but what hasn't been noticed sufficiently, Bill, is that, yes, indeed, this might work, in the sense that a lot of people don't pay attention to the uh, election till just before the election. There have been record numbers of people voting in advance. The pre, pre-poll uh, mail-in ballots and so forth have been extraordinarily healthy this year. However, uh, we have no idea, because we don't have the polling on it, how many people were undecided? How, where the independents are going? This is a 50-state election. You can't get these kind of figures. The pollsters who now admit that they've gotten a lot of elections wrong in recent years are saying it's because a lot happens. The election gets uh, determined in the final days uh, after the polling has more or less stopped. So is this going to work? It's entirely possible that it will, at least for a lot of people. Uh, that, that's, I think, the biggest concern. I mean, in, in, we, as we watch this from the outside, we, like, uh, how could how could people actually, you know, cling to something like this and 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 say, yeah, this is true. This is, because uh, you think this is just it's it's almost fiction. Uh, but at the same time, you're right. People are gravitating to this, and and this is the, really a variation. Although I think he's ramped it up a little bit of the same sort of tactics he used to get elected in the first place. It was fear, and it got him elected. Yeah, in the first place. Uh, we should also keep in mind a couple other things. One of the quiet factors in this election is that the economy is booming. And in, in a year when you have elections and the economy is going well, that favors the party in power. 
and the party in power in this case, uh, the Democrats can say all they want, although they haven't even been saying it. Look, this is really the Obama economy, and it's going to bottom out, and it's going to come back to bite you when the Republicans manage to dismantle the protections that America has had under Obama. But the strength of the economy is an underlying strength for the party in power, and that includes Donald Trump. And if he can successfully do what he's very good at, which is changing the, changing the dialogue, changing what's going on, away from things he doesn't want you to look at, in this case, surging Democrats, based on some policies that are uh, harmful to his party, toward things that work for him, well, he's been barnstorming on this. And, and, of course, he's got the control of the military, and he's sending them down there. So, I mean, he's creating a narrative right now that yes. is dominating the news cycle. That's, and you just put the, word, the right word on it. This is dominating the news cycle instead of other things. So things that are favorable to the Republicans are now coming to the fore at the crucial climatic moments of, of an election, which in turn is indeed crucial. You know what's interesting about this? Uh, we talked about this, uh, I guess, two years ago during the, the presidential campaign itself. Uh, is that the media were were just chastising Trump and saying this guy can't be taken seriously, uh, and and for heaven's sakes, don't vote for this guy. Yet they gave him oodles of time on primetime television every night, free uh, for free, and they're doing it again. Yes, he's <laughs> he's underestimated as a politician. Uh, he was underestimated by the, what, 18 or so Republicans who were running against him, or that he was running against when he entered the nomination process. He was underestimated in, once he actually clinched the nomination, and he perhaps is being underestimated now. And also, let's stand back from this a bit and take a look at some other figures. Something like 90% of the Republican Party support him. So the and the evangelical support for him, as we've talked about, has gone up, not down, despite uh, some of the things we've been hearing in the news about his personal um, behavior. So the people who elected him last time are still backing him this time, in addition to the strength of the economy. Uh, there's just a new poll out that uh, the Harris poll said that 46% of Republican registered voters said they associate with Trump, not the party, 25%, not 46%, 25% say they associate with the party itself. So he has enormous devotion uh, by Republican voters, even more than they say they are Republican, they're Trump people. It's, it's, it's not a political movement, it's a cult movement. Well, whatever it is, uh, it's not to be underestimated. The Moving to the midterms itself, uh, it's quite clear that this is an effort to diversify, I'm sorry, to uh, take people's attention away, to diversify the attention away from health care and other issues working for the Democrats. But, uh, and it's also not at all clear how the final moments are going to play out. But what's going to happen uh, in the Senate? What's going to happen in the House? And what we've been hearing all along, it's about 80% chance the Democrats are going to take the House and Nancy Pelosi I think unwisely is saying, oh, yeah, we've got it. That's always a mistake. Yeah. Uh, and the Senate, well, the Republicans are confident they're going to take that. The, the difference between this 80% and 20% and, you know, the House versus the Senate, those numbers haven't changed. What has changed, Bill, is this, that initial 80%, and, you know, on one side and on the other side, who's going to take the House, who's going to take the Senate, initially it was, yes, the Democrats are going to definitely take the House, and they have a slim possibility of taking the Senate. Now it's the Republicans have a definite possibility, you know, they're, they're going to take the, the Senate, and a slim possibility of holding the House. So the numbers haven't changed, the overall trend hasn't changed, but the reckoning within that has changed. And, and the way this is happening, and, and this is one of the things that I was somewhat surprised about, but obviously when you look at some of the way the, the polling numbers have changed over the last 10 days, Elliot, maybe not, uh, but uh, when the economy booming as it is, and yep. and there is an argument to be made that this is really just the tail end of the the Obama push, and he's, he's riding that wave. He's never going to admit that, of course. No. But you'd think that, you know... And, uh, and, and the Democrats can't make that stick. Well, yeah, and not... You know, 
I, I, we continue to be underwhelmed by the Democrats with the, the way they've run campaigns. Obviously, the presidential campaign, but even through the midterms, uh, it's a pretty strong indication here, Elliot, that these guys are just walking to the finish line, figuring we've got this. We're going to win the house. We might even pick some up, and and they they take their foot off the gas as they always have done in the last couple of uh, election cycles, and it costs them, and it may cost them in this one. Yes, there's a flood of money coming in to the Democrats, and the Democrats are using it effectively, perhaps, to get uh, the ground game going to be sure that people actually show up. And this is another thing to discuss, is who's going to show up to vote. Yeah. The Republican voting base is absolutely reliable to the degree it's older and white, and male for that matter, and but women as well. These are people who reliably turn out to vote, if they're Democrats as well. But the Democrats are relying on people who are not likely uh, to show up in the same kind of percentages. So elections are won by people who show up to vote, and the Democrats are relying on millennials and minorities, and these are groups which tend not to vote in as large, a, 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 as high a proportion. So that's, that's another part of this equation. Well, and I know that those numbers were up uh, marginally, of course, when Barack Obama ran the first time. But yeah. uh, but that's because they had somebody that, uh, right. that that polarized that support, and they could say we've got to stand behind this. Midterms, it's a little more difficult. Uh, you've got a sitting president who obviously is a focal point of the campaign. Uh, the Democrats really don't have anybody to to take the standard so and it's say local one, yeah. one after the other after the other. Another maxim or guideline for watching elections is, you know the. The job is to expand your own base and suppress the opposition's base. And we know, for example, that's what the Russians were up to in a lot of what they were up to in their apparent hacking uh, and attacks in the last election. They were just trying to stir up enough enough dissension in America and its weak spots to get people to say, well, what the heck, I'm not going to take part in this election. So uh, voter suppression, overtly or covertly, or stronger or weak, is going to play a role. Everybody's watching Georgia right now, where the sitting attorney general has spent years basically rigging the, the electoral system for the Republicans, and now he's, Repub- he's leaving the attorney general's role and, and running for governor uh, and saying, oh, yeah, I can, I can be fair about this. And we've got images in Georgia of black uh, African-American, uh, mainly women, but African-American voters on a bus trying to find a way to get to a place they can actually register and being stopped by the police and pulled off the bus. So right in front of our eyes, if you watch it, uh, uh, Stacey Adams, I mean, the, the, the Democrat who's running there uh, is an is a African-American woman in Georgia who's running neck and neck right now against a system that's clearly been rigged against against the Democrats. Yeah, and we haven't even touched about the gerrymandering that's gone and on that's, over the last uh, number uh, of years uh, by the Republican Congress. Which takes us also to another attend, uh, topic, Bill, which is we're talking about the federal level, which is good, but there's governorships up across, the, uh, across America, a lot of them. Now, in something like 26 of the states, 24 to 26 states, there have been restrictive measures put in place to basically suppress uh, Democratic votes. A lot of those states are now up for, are open, and across beyond that, there's a large number of governorships that are held by Republicans where the Democrats might well do, uh, do pretty well this time. So keep an eye also below the level of the federal, uh, who's going to control House and Senate, to who's going to control the governorships and the houses where redistricting takes place, <laughs> where gerrymandering takes place, where voter suppression can take place. So uh, the Democrats are likely to have a pretty good night on the governorship side. But it's, it's got to be troubling for them to think that, you know, five weeks ago they thought this, they, they had this thing in the bag, especially when it came to the House of Representatives. Uh, and, and, you know, they, and they thought they had a shot at actually winning some Senate seats as well. Uh, and the, and the, the more egregious Trump's behavior has been, the, the, the more support the, the Republicans seem to garner. Yes, although his his support had sh- shot up for him well, to above 50%. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, it's dropped four points in the last week. So uh, the, the popularity of the president normally is a big consideration. In this case, it doesn't seem to be as a determining factor, although probably a lot of the House seats that are up now 
uh, for contention are because the incumbent Republican decided not to run at a time when the president's approval rating was so low, they thought it was a good time to get out, leaving open seats, and therefore the possibility maybe, even in Republican areas, that Democrats might might come in. One thing we might talk about uh, is the post-election scene, because yeah. everybody's so far, as we should be, focusing on what's going to happen Tuesday night. It's going to be, for me, a very late night and for all junkies. But what what about after the election? Assuming that the polls are correct, and, and, I, and, I, and I caution you that this election is not over. It could still be a big blowout for the Democrats, for example, or the Republicans might even hold, hold the House. We don't know. But after the election, uh, a few things. If the Democrat, if we, you know, Democrats take the House and the Republicans take the Senate, what's going to happen, among other things, is if, if you're looking for civility in American politics to come back, that's not going to happen. No. Uh, for sure. But another thing to keep an eye on is Mueller is going to come back. Uh, the Mueller investigation has been keeping deliberately a low profile during the electoral, during the cycle, as the voting is you know, ramping up and carrying on. He's been very discreet, but I think that's likely to end right after the midterms are over. So the kinds of things about uh, collusion and, and cover-up and also follow the money, which I think is the most promising line for those who think uh, Donald Trump is vulnerable. Mueller, I think, will be back. Uh, I think a lot of top GOP people are going to be out. That is, people appointed by the president might well be gone. I think Mattis is clearly uh, clearly um, being rumored, and now there's rumors about that 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 actually John Bolton is spreading the rumors that Mattis is out. <laughs> so there's rumors about that. But he's not likely to be the only one. People that the, uh, Trump has appointed in the past that have disappointed him by saying, you know, Mr. President, you just said X and it can't happen. It, is, it isn't just you know, Paul Ryan who's not running. Uh, it's Dan Coates, the head of uh, intelligence, and maybe, maybe even uh, the FBI director, Ray, uh, because they've said, Mr. President, no. And watch, of course, for, for session. The Attorney General of the United States is almost certainly to go. Lindsey Graham is openly campaigning for the job. Uh, we saw that during the Kavanaugh hearings. Yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that was his, what you saw in the Kavanaugh hearings. His audition tape. Was exactly, his audition. Well put, Bill. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, of course, then Rodenstein can go, and then the Mueller investigation is in question. So there's going to be a lot of things to watch for after the election. And we'll talk about it uh, when the dust settles, if it ever does. Elliot, thanks as always. I really appreciate the time today. Always a pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Elliot uh, Tepper, of course, uh, Professor Emeritus uh, Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, it's, it's a game changer. And there are, as Elliot said, there are international implications uh, for what could happen in this election. Uh, don't forget, this uh, new trade deal that uh, was hammered out between uh, Mexico, Canada, and the United States has not yet been ratified. And if there's a significant change in, in the Congress down in the States, that could be in peril, too. We'll see next week. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.